Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11? Mark chapter 11. Well, have you ever anticipated meeting someone very important? Maybe someone who was a celebrity or maybe someone who was very high in the government or someone you see on TV a lot. Maybe you knew you're going to meet them and you anticipated that and you start coming up to that moment, maybe get a little nervous, start rehearsing your mind. What are you going to say to that person? And and then eventually it comes where that person walks in the room, they're in your presence, and what happens? Many times you get nervous, you don't know what you're going to say, and you forget everything that you rehearsed in your mind, right? When you're in the presence of someone who is very, very important, it can be difficult to know what to say because it's they're very can be a very intimidating person, but there's something special about being in the presence of someone that we consider to be important. Today we're speaking about prayer, and when we pray, we are entering into the presence of God, the most important, highest one in the world, God himself. And we're studying In the past couple weeks, we've been studying about prayer. And last week, we studied really the prayer of salvation. And as we think about these different prayers, I divided them up into four different weeks. In the first week, we learned about really the prayer of salvation, which was blind Bartimaeus crying out, Have mercy upon me, son of David. And Jesus did just that. And Jesus said, listen, your faith really is faith in Jesus. Your faith saved you. And then last week, we looked at the prayer of thanksgiving. That's really praising God for who he is. And so we see Jesus coming in on a colt into Jerusalem. And the people, we don't really know how much they completely understood about who Jesus was, but they praised him anyways. Of course, Jesus says, if they didn't do it, the rocks would cry out. Actually, I think he was referring to the children that were praising him in the temple there. And then this week, we're going to look at the prayer of A fellowship, which is joyfully submitting to God in his holy presence. Now, before we go into that part today, I want to tell you, I really had a hard time coming up with what what I should say there. I didn't know if I should say enjoying God in his holy presence or submitting to God in his holy presence. But as I really studied this, what I realized and I understood was that as we yield to God and submit to him, that's when we find joy. So they actually go together. They're they're actually linked together. We joyfully submit to God in his holy presence. And then next week, we're going to look at the the prayer of petition to the Lord. And all these prayers we're looking at are approaching God in faith. That's why I'm titling it Praying with Faith in God. In fact, look down in verse 22, and you can see that's the conclusion that Jesus has with his disciples, he says, and Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. So that's kind of where I get this idea that these are, this is the theme of our, our messages here. And Jesus was particularly here speaking about praying with faith. Now, as we pray, we pray with faith and God is always the object of our faith. 
we, our faith rests upon the character and the promises of God communicated in the word of God. So we are now today looking at fellowshipping with God in this prayer of faith that, that joyfully submits to God in his holy presence. We're going to start in verse 11, Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. Would you follow along with me as I read the holy word of God? Mark eleven eleven, and he, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus, uh, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city and as they passed, By in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Let's pray. Father, we are here in your presence and need a continual flow of grace upon us. So may the Spirit of God help us as we intently and intentionally listen to your word. I pray you will speak through your word as I communicate it. May I not say anything that's my opinion. May I say things that truly reflect what your opinion is from the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine the grand entrance Jesus made as he came into the city of Jerusalem on this cold Thousands of people praising him. Hosanna. Think about the song they sing from the Hallel of Psalm 118. And he came into Jerusalem into the temple. The temple was really the focal point of Jerusalem. It was the highest place in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was outside of Jerusalem. That was higher. But this was the highest place in Jerusalem. Everyone would have looked to Jerusalem and... and or, in Jerusalem, looked to the temple and seen the smoke rising up. And so that would have been a focal point. And that was Jesus' destination was the temple. Look down in verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And what did he do there? It says, and when he had looked around everything, as it was late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So what did he do in the temple on this here Palm Sunday? What did he do? Well, he did sort of an inspection of the spiritual life of Israel. 
So he goes into the place where spiritual life is supposed to be taking place. He has now come in as the Messiah King. He's kind of looking over his, if you could say, spiritual domain and examining it. And then it was late, so he went home. And then next, the next day came back and rendered a verdict upon the spiritual worship of Israel. You can picture him walking through the, the courts here. There was the largest court, which is called the court of the Gentiles. And you can picture him in that large court out there as he walks around and looks at that. And the, the next court in was the court of women, which women, Jewish women and Jewish men could go in there. No one else that wasn't Jewish. And then inside of that was the court of men, which was just for Jewish men. And inside of that was the temple area where the priests made sacrifices. And so you can imagine him evaluating, looking at all this, thinking, consider, considering it. And what was he doing? I mean, why, why was he evaluating this? Why was he looking at all these things and leaving? What was he doing? Well, I think in order to answer this question, we have to understand what the temple was. What was the temple? The temple was supposed to be a place where, where God's special presence was manifested, where, where Israel and actually all the nations of the world could come and find forgiveness in the Lord and, and pray and worship the one true God. So the temple really represented the presence of God. So we believe that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? Space and time cannot contain him. But we are not like God. We are confined to a certain place at a certain time. And so God and his this wisdom has, ch- has chosen over time to have certain places where he manifests himself in a, in a special way to us. So he creates us for what purpose? And that is to fellowship with him. And he's chosen certain places like the temple to manifest himself so people can worship and joy and fellowship in his holy presence. So the purpose of our existence is to enjoy and fellowship with the Lord. And the way we do that is really like any other relationships, right? We have, we live in relationship to the Lord. We communicate to him. He communicates with us. We are blessed with his person and with his presence. And so this is why God created us. And so important for us to understand that when we think about what the temple is, what the purpose of the temple was. So the, the temple was a place God dedicated so the people of God could come into a holy, the holy presence of God and speak to him and have him speak to them. And how did God speak to Israel? Well, we know that Moses, when he would go in as the Moses and Aaron, who was the high priest, he would go into the tabernacle. They would actually go before the Ark of the Covenant and God would speak from the mercy seat to them. We also know that the scriptures was probably the clearest way that God communicated to all of Israel. So in the temple there, they actually would read the scriptures. And actually you see Jesus teaching, right? As one of the rabbis. And so in, in these courts there, there would have been uh, rabbis teaching the word of God. And of course that happened in synagogues and the local communities. But this was like the prime place to come and teach the word of God. So God communicated to people through his word and at certain times of history through the high priest, to the high priest, but also as a place where people were to come and to talk to God in prayer. Now look at verse 17. You can see that here when Jesus responds back when he was teaching. Verse 17, he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? This is a 
quote of the Old Testament, Isaiah. And the idea is, listen, everyone is invited to come and to pray to God. That's the whole purpose, coming into his presence and speaking to him. And really fundamental to praying is the idea that God is present with us. We can talk to him. And so by faith, we believe, God, you're here with us. You actually, you listen to us. You actually care for us. You should care what I'm talking about. And I can communicate my heart to you, which think about it. That should be mind boggling to us to think about. Yesterday, I was watching a video of uh, the president speaking to two ladies who were in space. They're on a spacewalk, two astronaut ladies. And uh, it was pretty cool to watch that and think of the fact that here are two ladies that are not in the space capsule. They're actually out in space speaking to a man in a White House, right, <laughs> on Earth. Like, that was pretty crazy to think about, just how through technology there's, there's a sense where they can be present together with a four-second delay, present together, talk to each other. But even consider, like, even more incredible is the truth that an infinite, holy God who cannot be contained by time or by space actually comes within our time, within our space, and communicates to us. There are the two ladies. There's the president. And I saw this video on the internet. It kind of does a a zoom in from as far out as we can imagine, all the way into earth. And just think about how God has created an enormous universe with Billions of stars or other suns, you could say it that way. I mean, just think of the complexity of this world, the vastness of this world. But even beyond that, the limitless of God, limitlessness of God. And, and you think about all that, like really, we are pretty insignificant, aren't we? Think about that. Like we're just these little pieces of chemicals that are walking around on this earth in this vast cosmos that God has created. Yet, listen, yet God says he made us in his image and we can speak to the holy, unique, infinite creator and we were created to enjoy him. He created all that so we could enjoy his creation. Most importantly, we could worship him and enjoy him. That is astounding. Like the Bible says that we can draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Now just think about that with what we just talked about. Isn't that amazing to think about? Ephesians 3, 12 says, in whom we have boldness. So in Christ, we have boldness and access. The way we're able to pray is because we're in Christ. We've been redeemed by Christ. We have access with confidence through our faith in him. So that, This idea that God wants to fellowship with us in his holy presence is amazing and actually goes back to the very beginning of the world. So hold on with me as we kind of just go through and speak about God's holy presence manifested on this earth in different ways. And the first time we see this is in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, right? The Bible says that God created the world and, and the heavens and the earth in six days by speaking it into existence. And we see that his presence fills the universe. It fills his entire creation. And then we see in Genesis chapter 2 that he actually, on this earth, this blue dot, he actually creates a special place, what we know as the Garden of Eden, to manifest himself and, and dwell with his people that he has created. 
You know what the, the word Eden actually means? Delight. So what were they to delight in? Well, definitely the goodness that God had given around them, but ultimately it was to delight in the Lord. And so Adam and Eve were sinless and they were innocent and they lived in this holy earth, this holy garden with the holy God communicating with them. And that is until they rejected him. They rejected his holiness. They sinned against God, rebelled, and everything changed. That's why Genesis 3, 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this must have been something that they were used to. It's like, this is what God does. He comes and he fellowships with us. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, hid themselves from, and notice this, the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they had this special blessing, but when sin entered the heart of man, the result was that he was therefore expelled from the garden. And the removal from this garden pictured the judgment of sin that separates people from God. God created us to have fellowship with him, but really he's holy and we have sinned against him. Therefore, we are not. And so God his, he judges us by removing fellowship from us because he, the Bible says, is like light and in him is no darkness. And our sin is a darkness that separates us from him. So the Bible says that, that he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed a, the cherubim in the flaming sword. Now, some people look at this and they see one angel but actually, cherubim is the plural of cherub. So there are at least two angels there at that garden with a flaming sword to keep them out. And the Bible says that God, before he expelled them from that garden that he made for them, he made for them, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. So here, before they were, they were, they sinned against God. They were naked. They were unashamed of that. But now with sin, they experience the shame of nakedness. So God gives a picture that communicates that he can cover them and he can take away their shame. And it's the idea that these animals that were killed can, can, can cover the sin of these people as they place their faith in the Lord. So there's a picture there of the covering that God gave to Adam and to Eve. Then later on in the Old Testament, we see Abraham come on the scene and the Lord God makes promises to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 22, we see that he takes his son up to a mountain called Mount Moriah. And there there's like a mini Eden that takes place. There's a, a sacrifice of a ram. God provides that sacrifice. God speaks to him. And then from Abraham, God fulfills his promise and creates a nation called Israel and Israel and the first thing God does when he creates this nation is he provides a place for them to come and meet with him. We call that a, a tabernacle. And so Exodus 25, 8 says, and let them make me, that's God speaking, a sanctuary, a holy place, is what sanctuary means, that I may dwell in their midst. So you see the heart of God here that he wants to dwell with his people. He only, only can dwell in, in fellowship with them in holiness. But you see this tabernacle here where they can come and they can experience the presence of God. And so you think about 
the tabernacle they had, and think about all around them were all the nations of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they surrounded, and in the middle was God. And they could come into that tabernacle and sacrifice, and they could actually experience the presence of God through the promise of God. And so think about just how God communicated to his people, and they were able to pray to him. And then 900 years later, 1 Chronicles 21 records that David purchased some land on Mount Moriah, and he was going to build a temple there, but then his son, six years later, built that temple to be a permanent tabernacle, place for God to manifest his Shekinah glory. And then in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came, the king of Babylon, destroyed that first temple. Seventy years later, the people came back from captivity. Ezra records that, that Zerubbabel built a, a modest temple in 15, or 515 B.C. That was the second temple. Then in 20 B.C., King Herod rebuilt and created a third temple. And that began about 20 years before Jesus Christ came as a baby into this world to live and die and be resurrected again. And that was under construction for 84 years. And you thought construction in California and the roads were long. That was long. So actually, it spanned through the life of Jesus. So, so Jesus would have gone into the temple as a child, and he would have seen construction. This was the temple, the third temple that Jesus was in when he entered then into Jerusalem for the Passovers and for the other festivals. And in that temple, there was a place called the Holy Place, and then... Beyond that, a place called the Holy of Holies. And in this temple, everywhere reminded the priest that God desires to dwell with his people. And so the temple, think about this, the temple was sort of like a mini Eden. It was a a place for people to come to delight and enjoy the Lord and fellowship with God. So like Adam and Eve were to work the Garden of Eden and tend it, the priest worked and tended the temple. In the holy place, there was a menorah, and it represented a tree. In fact, if you read the description of it in the Old Testament there in the Pentateuch, you can see that it actually has, says it has tree, a, looks like a tree with blossoms on it, which, which is really similar to the tree of life that we have in the Garden of, of Eden. And like God provided for Adam and Eve in the garden with all the fruits and provision of the trees, God Provision, the temple was the bread of presence for the priests. And so there was this bread that was in there that we call sometimes the show bread. And literally in Hebrew, it means the bread of faces. So it's kind of the idea that God wants to meet and fellowship with his people. And the priests would pray in the holy place towards the holy of holies. And they had uh, an altar of incense and that smoke would go up to God, which represented the prayers of God's people. And they would pray before that, before the Lord there. There was a large curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was a four-inch thick curtain that represented God was separate. He was holy, and man is sinful. And behind that curtain was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And the Ark of the Covenant had what on top of it? Two cherubim, right? So cherubims, cherubs, two cherubs, that's singular, two cherubs. And in between those cherubs were, were, were God communicated to Moses and the high priests certain times in the history. So like the garden where God spoke to people, this was the place, the holy place, that God could speak to the high priest. And so the Bible says that Moses went into the tent of meeting, that was the tabernacle, to speak with the Lord. He heard, listen, 
the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. From between the two cherubs, God spoke to him. It's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? So the only person allowed in that holy place was the high priest, and he would go in there and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat there. And the blood represented that, that God was covering their sins. He would cover their sins and forgive them. So this is the place where Israel would come to, to, to worship God and submit in joy to him in his holy presence. So over and over you see Israel having these, or the people of God having a place where they can come and worship God, but over and over it's removed from them. And why is that? And why was the Garden of Eden removed from Adam and Eve? Why was it removed three times from Israel, this, this special place? It's because of man's sin. And what's interesting to see is that here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes and evaluates the temple. And his conclusion, we're going to see here in chapter 11, his conclusion is, is that it's, they're spiritually bankrupt. They're empty. They're not really worshiping the presence of God. It's all about them. And he declares that he's going to abolish the temple and it's going to be replaced with another temple. And you know what that temple is? It's himself. Would you turn to John chapter 2? And just let me show you this to you briefly. So here in Mark 11, we're at the end of Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 2, we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus turns the water into wine. Remember that in Cana? His mother had a little input on that. He did that. And then the next thing he did is he goes down to Passover in Jerusalem. And notice what Jesus does in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover, the Jews, was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons in the money changers sitting there. And he made a whip of cords. This is judgment right here, friends. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. No wonder the Pharisees hated him, right? And the Sadducees. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So he, that's a great way to start a ministry, right? To go in and just clean it out like that. Not, not really if you're a human, right? But Jesus, he recognized that this was supposed to represent the presence of God. And these people were defiling the place where God wanted to dwell with his people. Historians tell us that probably around 30 AD, this, this marketplace began. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, um, brought all these animals and sheeps and dove and meal and and oil and sold them there in this place and in uh, the outer courts there called the court of the Gentiles. So you think of that large area right there. It's, it's actually pretty massive. I actually was looking at a map, Google map, trying to figure it out. And I was actually calculating that the, the, it's about 36 um, acres up there. And that's actually, if you take Stonebridge Church down here and you go all the way down to Stearns and you take the front of Cochrane and back to our property, that's about 35, 35. 35 acres right there. So think about how huge that is. And all this is taking place. And all these animals and doves and everything used to be sold outside of Jerusalem. If you go down this slope here to the right, there's some Levitical fields where the, the shepherds would be and they would sell things outside the city there. But Caiaphas brought it in and then there was clearly extortion taking place here. You know, you had the money changers and they would have a rate of about 25% that they would put on top of the, the exchanging of the coins. Animals were to be brought in. They had to be spotless. Remember that? And so uh, a priest could decide if it was spotless or not. And of course, if you brought a, a lamb from somewhere else, you didn't buy from them. Do you think that your lamb was spotless? 
No, right? And so people would come in and be like, I'm sorry, you can't buy this one. In fact, if you're poor, you could buy a dove. And I was reading that. If you kind of uh, thought about the prices of modern day and how it would be back then, a person in a city that was poor could buy a dove for about four, uh, for about five cents. But if you bought one in the temple, it was $4. So they're ripping these people off, right? Josephus was a historian. He said about 25,000 sheep were slaughtered in this week here of Passover. It's a lot of blood, first of all. But secondly, think about how much money they made, right? This was their Black Friday. Like the priests were like, Yahoo, this is when we're getting the money in, right? I mean, that's what was happening here. Jesus saw this and his first act of ministry at the temple was one of judgment. And just like all the other temples were condemned and abolished, Jesus prophesied, this one's going to be done away with too. And Jesus' prediction came true. 40 years later, after this, the Romans came in and they leveled it. So it was finished in 64 AD and 70 AD. There was no more temple and there hasn't been physically a temple since. Look at verse 17 of John 2. And so his disciples, they remembered what was written in the scriptures. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years. We're halfway through this to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So what temple were they speaking about? The physical one. What temple was he speaking about? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So go back to Mark chapter 11. When Jesus was preaching here in the temple in John 2, he said, listen, this temple is going to be done away with. And I'm going to replace it. With another temple, and it's what? It's going to be myself. You think about this way. Jesus actually is the temple, right? He is the presence of God. He is God. I mean, just imagine being the disciples and being able to live and enjoy the presence of God for three years. That's amazing. So he, Jesus was like a walking Eden. He's, he's a walking temple. And God had removed his presence from Israel because of their sin. But listen to this. He sent his son to be the presence of God among them, to be punished for their sins. Put a little diagram together. It's kind of thinking through all these different temples, all these different places where God's presence was specially manifested. Just thinking through this as you think about Eden. Eden, man was able to walk with God. In the tabernacle, Moses was able to talk with God. And, and in the temple, God spoke to them primarily through the speaking of his word, but Jesus is the word. So today we have the words of Jesus, the Holy Scriptures. There was a covering for shame for their sin in the Garden of Eden. In the tabernacle, the blood of the lambs covered their sin and the temple as well. But Jesus came and he is our sacrifice. And in Eden, there was a punishment uh, from, uh, for their sin. They were removed from the garden. In the tabernacle, remember when they sinned against God, God killed a lot of them right there, right? Korah and all them. In the temple, the whole system was destroyed. And Jesus actually took the punishment upon himself for our sin. Eden was a holy place. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was a holy place. And listen, Jesus actually makes us the holy place. Eden was designed for fellowship. The tabernacle allowed for fellowship, and so did the temple. And Jesus is our fellowship. We can commune with the father through 
Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the temple and he's the presence of God. If you remember the disciples, they're, they're sitting around a table in John 14 and Jesus says, you know, I'm not going to be with you much longer, guys. And they're just, oh, no. And, you, and we think, oh, that was really sad. But think about it. I mean, they actually got to experience the presence of God. No, they weren't completely understanding all that at that moment. It was like they definitely enjoyed being with Jesus. Now they're sad. And what did Jesus say? He goes, I'm, I'm going to leave you, but I'm actually still going to be with you because I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you. So therefore, Jesus, listen to this. Jesus has brought the temple to us and within us through the power of Christ and the presence of his Holy Spirit. So we as believers, have the Holy Spirit living within us. The Bible says as we gather as a church, God is present with us. Jesus is our high priest that gives us access to the Father in prayer. We have the Eden of fellowship where we can just enjoy and celebrate the Lord and have the, the fellowship with our Father. And we are like the children of that garden of Eden. We can walk with God even in the midst of a cursed world. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are members of the household of God. Like, you're part of the family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles, right? And the prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So, remember the cornerstone that was rejected? Well, he's the chief cornerstone. And look at that. Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are the temple of the Lord. In fact, that's what the Bible says, that we are the temple of the Lord. Jesus promised where where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So the church together in the spirit of God, we are the temple of God. So brothers and sisters, this is not not the church right here, this building. This is the church right here. And, And this is not a holy place, we are the holy place. Now, I know it's a cultural thing, and I already had this written down before I talked to anyone today, okay? I know it's a cultural thing in California, but a lot of people like to call this room the sanctuary. I just, it was kind of a shock to me a little bit. It's just some things in California, you're like, oh, really? Okay. I think probably the roots of it are in the Catholic church, but actually this room is not a sanctuary. Sanctuary means holy place. Do you realize, and I, and I know it's cultural, so I have a lot of grace for you, okay? It's like something that people speak it and say it. So people say, I say it about the church. I'm like, hey, you guys want to go to church? Eh, it's, this, it's a building, like, but that's not the church. This is just a building. You're the church, right? So we, we mess that up. But it can be confusing sometimes when we call certain places like this a sanctuary. So I would probably say just maybe think about that and maybe try to think about maybe something else that you could think about, a place where we meet as holy people. I don't know. But anyways, the point is, is that this building, this room isn't a holy place. We, listen to this, we are the holy place. God, the spirit dwells within us. So where two or three are gathered, Jesus is present here with us. The Bible says, do you not know that you, that's plural, that's the church, you are God's temple and that's. The spirit of God dwells in you. Do you realize, people, that God is here with us right now? When the spirit of God is within us and we gather together, we can be guaranteed that God is present with us. Listen, we are right now standing in the Holy of Holies. 
because the Spirit of God is here with us and he has made us holy in Christ. Not our own righteousness, right? It's not because we're a bunch of good people, because we're not. Without Jesus Christ, he is the one who makes us holy. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost within you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? I mean, what are are the implications that we are the temple of God? Well, I think, first of all, it helps us to remember that what God wants most from you is to come and enjoy his holy presence. In the Garden of Eden, in that tabernacle, in the temple, I mean, what did God want? He wanted people to joyfully submit to him, to recognize who he is, and then to say, okay, this is who you are, and God, I'm going to enjoy you as I come in obedience before you and submission and, and surrender to you. I think secondly, it's also recognizing that we are God's temple as a gathered church. So therefore, it changes our perspective of why we gather or how we gather. It's like we are here to experience the presence of God. Yesterday, we went out and we passed out some flyers and had some uh, conversations with people. And as I was coming back in the parking lot, a guy pulled in and he wanted to uh, have his car washed. And I was like, well, there's no car wash. But I said, but... I can talk to you about Jesus. So I did. And, um, and so I you know, was talking to him. He said he's a Christian. He said, yeah, he'd been saved and all that. And he said, but I don't go to church anywhere. And so I said to him, I said, oh, um, I said, you know, the Bible says that, that uh, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I don't think you have to come to our church, but it'd be good for you as a Christian to go to church. And I said, do you, do you think that you're living in obedience to what the Lord says there? He says, well, I don't go to church. I don't like that because that, see that right there is a good example of everyone has their own opinion on things. And 95% of people in church have their own opinions. And so I don't like to go to church because everyone has opinions. And I said, you know what? I think he's probably true, <laughs> probably right. But the question isn't if, it, it, the question is actually if you actually teach the word of God, not your own opinion, right? That's why I prayed at the very beginning, God, help me how to teach my own opinion. And I said, come to our church. We, by God's grace, admit it, try to humbly. And when we're teaching something that's just our opinion, We try not to do that, but we try to teach your word. But the more he talked about church, the more I was like, wow, it kind of sounds like he's going to DMV when he thinks about going to church. You know, and sometimes we can have that mindset where it's like, oh, I got to go to church today. You know, (laughs) I got to wake up this morning and go to church and we can have that. But then I was thinking about this morning as I was studying this and I was thinking, wait a second. Like we get to meet with God. Like think about it. That's pretty amazing. It'd be like, oh, let's go to church. That's me with God. I imagine if you had a celebrity or someone you really looked up to and you found out they're going to be at church, I imagine you probably wouldn't show up late, would you? <laughs> right? I imagine a change your perspective. You'd probably be more excited. You probably have something you're like, I want. And listen, the Bible promises that God is present with us. We can come into the holy of holies because he has made us holy. I think last is the idea that we are his temple. It changes our ownership. We do not own ourselves. Right? We don't own ourselves. We've been bought with a price, and therefore it changes how we live. So my original question is, why did Mark record the evaluation of the temple? <laughs> so we're, we're, not, we're still in verse 11, but we're going to get through the rest of it. Don't worry. I only have a, a page and a half more of notes. So. so look down at verse 11. He says, he went into the temple, and he looked around at everything. And what was he doing here? He was surveying, really, the spiritual condition of Israel And therefore, he goes to the next verses, and he condemns them. Look at verse 12. On the following day, so the next day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came out, he found nothing but leaves. 
for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So what happened here on this road with this fig tree? Some people look at this and they go, I can't believe Jesus would kill a fig tree. (laughs) Well, uh, news, fig trees don't have feelings, okay? But Jesus was making a very important point here. A fig tree really has two parts to its uh, season of fruit. And so there's a fig tree, kind of blurry there, but a fig tree. And the first season is when the leaves come on the tree and there's unripe knobs on the tree. And so many people back then, because they would walk and they would find trees and they just eat what's on them, they would actually eat those little knobs. So you might think, oh, you got to wait till it's ripe. Well, they actually did sometimes wait. And sometimes when they'd see that on there, they would eat that. So to walk up to a tree and see leaves, but no fig knobs, meant the tree gave the appearance of being a fruit tree, but it actually was a deception. So that when he walked up to that tree and he was hungry, he walked up, didn't see any of the fruit knobs there, and he realized that tree is deceiving us, and he pronounced judgment on it, and he did it to make a point. The curse of the tree was an illustration that Jesus gave to represent the spiritual condition of Israel. Israel had a temple. Israel had priests. It seemed like the presence of God was there, but it was all a lie. It was all a deception. They pretended to be in fellowship with God, but they weren't in fellowship with God. It was an empty shell. God was not present with Israel, and soon judgment would come upon Israel. So like that fig tree that externally looked fruitful, but was not externally, Israel looked like it was spiritual, but actually, upon closer examination, it was not. Honestly, I think this is something I consider the Church of America, and I wonder if that's what Jesus would say to us as well. There's a lot of churches in America. There's a lot of churches in see me a lot more than I realized when I came. And I guess the question I have for America, for see me, for us, is, is, is the pretense there that we're present with God and we're fellowship with him, we're enjoying him, but there's actually nothing in there. Could it be that you pretend to love God and follow him, but it's just a show? It's a show. Remember when I was 15 years old and I went to a camp, I grew up in a pastor's home and I can remember struggling growing up, hearing the gospel, maybe not completely connecting my life to it, but part of it was I had all this pride in my heart. And if I were to tell people that uh, how bad of a person I truly was and that maybe I hadn't even become a believer yet and I wasn't really following the Lord, that would be embarrassing. I would have to tell the whole church that I might even have to get rebaptized because I wasn't a believer before. And it's like this pride is in there. And I was this fake Christian. I wasn't really a Christian, but I was fake Christian. And I can remember sitting in that camp. And I can remember sitting in the chair, in a metal chair there in the back uh, left-hand side, and the guy get up there giving his testimony. And this guy gave a testimony and said, hey, I grew up in a Christian home. And I pretended for many years to be a Christian, came to camp here and said I was a Christian, started working back here. His name was Andrew. And he said, this week I realized I'm not a Christian. And I gave my life to Jesus. The interesting thing is, is I knew that guy growing up. He was about three or four years older than me. And when he spoke, Those words pierced my heart, and I realized, Ben, you're a big fake yourself. In that seat, after he went down, someone came up and 
and he said, hey, maybe you're in here and you're like Andrew and you need to come to Christ. And I shot up and I said, I need to be saved. Went a little Pentecostal there, okay? And, and I went out and talked to someone about the Lord and uh, that guy, his name is Andrew Haney and he's the pastor of the church I was at in South Carolina now and we're good friends. And the point is, is that sometimes we, we are this right here. We're the fake Christians, right? And we need to come out and say it genuinely. Either I'm not a believer or I'm struggling and I need help. So verse 15, we see Jesus coming into the temple and judging the temple there and the, the worship. And look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So how he started his ministry, he ends his ministry. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seat of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were, were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. When Jesus entered the temple, he saw this greedy corruption. And what was the major problem that he identified? That they had turned the house, the place where God was to be worshipped, into a place to rip people off. It was a place to pray for all nations. And that's really a quote from Isaiah 56 there in verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Do you realize this is the heart of God? He wants every person in this world. I'd really believe this. He wants people to come to him. He says, this is my, this is my temple here. This is my place where you can come and to, to worship me. People of the world, come to me. And that's his invitation today. Come to me in repentance and faith. And if you're without Christ in here, my plea to you is to come. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. God wants us to enjoy him, to fellowship with him. And that really takes us to the design of the human race. He created an Eden for us to do that. We have failed him, but now he's given us the person of Jesus Christ to come and forgive us, to reconcile us with God and allow us to walk with him in this cursed world. And friend, I, I, I pray that you are enjoying the fellowship of God on a daily basis. And you come in here with that mindset. I want to, to know God and enjoy him and, and fellowship with him. Jesus, I think, was a great example of this. I mean, we, when he went to that temple, I think he was going there saying, I, I can't wait to worship my father with these people. And then it's like, what are you guys doing here? He would go out in the mountains, get up early in the morning, and he'd fellowship with God. He'd submit to his father. Even before he was, went to die, he says, oh, Lord, not my will, no father, not my will, but yours be done. He had this battle, but he submitted to his father in joy, even though it was, it was difficult. We see this with Paul. Paul is in prison. He's an impression, and he's, he says, I submit to the Lord. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, he says that I may know him and the, the fellowship that I have with him, even when I'm suffering, even when I'm suffering. So, God wants us to approach him in, in prayer and to submit joyfully in his presence. So I think I just probably should ask this question to all of us. Is that a part of our life, what we're doing? We must be in communion with the Lord. 
And again, if you're in here and you're like, this is something I desire. This is something that's not a part of my life. We would love to help you. Maybe you need to come to Christ today. So we invite you to come. Would you bow your heart and your, your head with me as we go into the presence of God and pray to him? Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now and you need to talk to God. Let me encourage you right now to cry out to him. Like I did that camp when I was a 15-year-old boy, maybe you need to say, Lord, I, I need you. Have mercy upon me. Save me. Maybe you're just a believer here and you say, Lord, help me to enjoy you more. Lord, give me wisdom and discernment of how I should order my life to bring you further glory and enjoy your fellowship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that we can know the purpose, the purposes of God, purposes that you have. And we look forward, I think above and beyond everything else, we look forward to enjoying you for eternity. And yes, our hearts can be darkened just to see the things of this world. We can just see the things around us. We can be concerned about our health. We can be concerned about our finances, politics. But God, help us. Give us grace to seek those things which are above where Christ is. At the right hand of the Father. But God, give us minds that are, that are elevated to you, to enjoy you in your holy presence. So, God, we want this fellowship that really redirects our mind to what's important. Life is only but a few breaths, a few moments on this earth. But life with you in eternity is forever. It's forever. And our greatest joy, like we read about in, in Philippians, is for me to live as Christ. Oh, boy, I love living for you, Lord, and we love living for you. And to die, that means we get to be with you. There's times when I don't have this heart, and I know that probably that's the case. Other people in here struggle with that as well. And so I guess our prayer to you is that you would give us this heart. This loves you so much that we're like, this is my life for you. And I can't wait to live with you. Can't wait to live with you. So, Father, we ask for your continued grace in our life. And I think of that, maybe that person sitting in here right now that is just wrestling with you. And they're living the fake life. I pray, God, you will humble them. I pray they'll come to you. There's a lot of things in our life, Lord, that are going on. And not all of it, we cling to your grace. We cling to your sufficiency. We cling to you. And we really say, it's well with my soul. Because we're trusting that you are the one in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're actually going to conclude the service singing, It is well with my soul. You know, I, I didn't plan out the service, you know, in a way that uh, to fit necessarily the theme of my passage or even some things that have happened in some people's lives. But it is neat how God weaves things together, isn't it? And I really do see that as this God's amazing uh, tapestry as he kind of weaves things. And you realize, wow, God will put this all together. And I know some of you are going through some deep valleys in here, some difficult things. And so all of us can look to the Lord, and recognize that he's in charge. He is sovereign. And he has an eternal future for us. And the most enjoyable thing is him. He is our reward. 
And so we can sing, it is well with my soul. Let's sing this out.